On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, it was 40 years ago this week that the Jonestown Massacre happened, one of the biggest, most horrific tragedies that anyone alive today will remember. Well, there were a few survivors, and one of them joins us to talk about Jonestown, talk about the warnings that she gave that what was going to happen, and talk about what comes afterwards. Stick around. It's worth a listen. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Sunday, if you had not been aware of this, Sunday was a tragic anniversary that many people will remember the story of what was going on 40 years ago, November 18, 1978. Over 900 people committed suicide at Jonestown at the order of religious leader, many would say cult leader, Jim Jones. The story was that uh, there were reports back to the States that some of the people in this People's Temple were being held against their will. So U.S. Congressman Leo Ryan traveled down to Guyana to check on it. And as he went back to his plane to return to the States, he was killed by some members of the of the group. Then Jim Jones made sure, announced that this was now time and they were going to drink cyanide-laced Kool-Aid. And as I say, 900 people, over 900 people died. It's Even today, it's one of the largest mass killings in American history. Most of those who were there as part of that group died, obviously. Uh, but not all. My next guest was one of the lucky ones. Her name is Deborah Layton. She's the author of Seductive Poison, a Jonestown survivor's tale of life and death in the People's Temple. She joins me now. Deborah, thanks for doing this today. Yes, thank you for inviting me. Uh, quite simply, when I look at this and I, I you read the story, how are you still with us? <laughs> Good question. Well, I think what people need to understand is nobody actually joins knowingly a cult. You join a self-help group, a religious movement, a dinner social. You know, it's your first year off at college, you're by yourself, and, you, and you're looking for community, and it's at that point that you can get pulled into one of these organizations, and that's what happened to me. I'd just come home from boarding school in England. Uh, my parents sent me to boarding school in England because I was a little creep. I was a liar, and it, it was Berkeley and, you know, the 70s, and um, I was just being far too influenced by what was going on here, and they sent me to boarding school in England, which was a great, great place, um, and they should not have let me come home for the six-week break uh, that they have in in European schools where you only have six weeks for summer. You're, you're basically in school all the time. And I was invited to this meeting in San Francisco by some really important person. You know, he was written about in the San Francisco Chronicle. President's wives had come and spoken from his pulpit. And so I went to this meeting. Uh, it was, you know, a, a grown-up. I'm 17. Thinking what? Thinking what? Th- this meeting was about what? What were you told? It was, it was a, People thought he was a civil rights leader. It was like being a part of Martin Luther King, except Jones, people thought he was an American Indian. It turned out he wasn't. It, you know, he was just a lovely little white boy, but he he made people, he, he kept his hair black, and people thought he was American Indian because he said so. And I went to this meeting, and at the end of it, this man in a beautiful black robe came up to me, and he said, I felt your energy when you entered the room tonight, Deborah, And I want you to know that your parents don't recognize your amazing qualities. I do. I need your energy in this organization. That was huge. That was Jim Jones himself? 
And it was Jim Jones himself telling me, you know, that my that my parents actually did know all my qualities, and that's why I was thousands of miles away in boarding school. But you know, I was I was so malleable. I was so innocent. I wanted so much to, to belong, and I wanted my parents to be proud of me because um, I had been a pain. And you know, I'm I'm the youngest of four. By the time I was eight years old, my both my brothers and my sister had gone to some horrific place called the University of uh, UC Berkeley or UC Davis, um, and they were gone. And suddenly my parents were left alone with an eight-year-old who had had so much attention. There was no way they could compete. And so I started going out on the furthest branch, and, you know, the fire department would have to be called, and Debbie, Debbie Lane was out there, and it was like, yes, 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 everybody noticed me. But my parents were just too busy. And Jim Jones knew how to lure or seduce people in by making them feel amazingly special. And do you think many of the other people who eventually, and we're right at the beginning stages here, but who were lured in, were in the same position? Do you think they had the same need as you did? Or was there a, a common denominator? I think for the young, for the young college educated, or, or the, you know, the young, young people, I hadn't quite made it to college, nor was I very educated at this point. But um, yeah, uh, you know, he, he, it was like, it was during the war in Vietnam. It was very much like the politics we have in the United States right now. You know, we have Adolf Trump, and then we have everything else that's going on, and either you're on one side or the other. And in, during the war in Vietnam, um, you know, either you were going to go to the war or you didn't. You know, either you were, you know, you were a patriot or you were a hippie. And it was very, very black and white. So and you believed you believed in Jim Jones at the start. Well, he was just a civil rights. Leader. Yeah, but you believed in what he stood for, at least I what you believed did. that he stood for. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know, you know, help the poor, the needy, can't you do something, you know, can't you participate in something bigger than yourself for two years? And it was like joining the Peace Corps. And I thought, wow, I, I, I can do this. But by the time I had been in the organization for three or four years, he made me, along with three other women, the financial secretaries of the church, not because I can add five plus, you know, 17, but because I was young. I didn't have a record of a job. I'd never had a job. My parents didn't think I needed one, nor could they trust me to have me at one. And so I didn't have, you know, that, that, that you know, whatever the tax following one might have. So I didn't, he didn't have to worry about my claiming it. And Deborah, I let me just jump in here for one sec. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, the Jonestown Massacre, 40 years ago Sunday. It is one of those cautionary tales that I think, and the reason I wanted her to come on is because it's one of these things you can't forget about, you don't want to forget about. Uh, Deborah, just before the break, you were talking about how you were easy to take down to Guyana because you were young, you hadn't had a job, you didn't have a lot of records with the government. What were you told Guyana was going to be like? What was the, what was the promise of going down there? Well, as um, People's Temple was uh, was a, a mixed organization, and there were a lot of blacks and Mexicans, and oh, not really very many Mexicans, but it w- it was multiracial. And he said, if we went to this wonderful place called 
you know, Guyana. It's a South American country. It was an, a British colony. It's the only South American country that does speak English. And that if we could, if we could get down there, he would find a place for us so that, uh, you know, race wouldn't be an issue, you know, and which is, it's a big, it's a big deal, as you can see in the United States with what's been going on recently. And, um, and I believed it. He would go down to this place. It was later called Jonestown. And he would send movies back about these beautiful cabins. And, you know, there's a river nearby and you can go fishing. And I was like, oh, wow, I cannot wait to go. It was utopia. Supposedly utopia. Um, when I finally got down there, it was... We flew into uh, Georgetown, which is the capital of Guyana. It was 250 miles, 24 hours op- over an open ocean on a, a ocean-worthy vessel that was People's Temples, Jim Jones. Then another nine hours up a river into absolutely nowhere. And then you got off that truck and you were brought another two, I mean, the the boat, another two hours into Jonestown, which was a clearing in the middle of a jungle near the Venezuelan border. Hmm. And the the jungle were our bars. And Jones had armed guards there saying he was protecting us from the mercenaries in the jungle. He did this whole mind game thing, and I believed it. You know, we had no information from the United States. Jones was the only voice we heard. He he spoke um, and he taped himself. So it was only his voice that went over the loudspeaker 24 hours a day. And when I got there, I knew I needed out. I knew I wanted to get out. And I knew that everybody in there was afraid. But nobody was going to tell one another, hey man, this is scary. So right away, Deborah, sorry yeah. to jump in, but right away, because a lot of people, I've been reading a lot of people's stories and they say, oh, you know what? I loved it there. I'm, I, it, what happened at the end was so horrific, but mm-hmm. I really loved it. You, you had a sense right away that you wanted to be gone. I knew right away that something was desperately wrong and that there were armed guards watching us, that my passport was taken, mm. you know, immediately. I was, you know, I had just turned, I was 24, it was almost Christmas. We had no idea, you know, if it was your birthday, if it was Christmas Day. It was just what Jones, the information he wanted to, to give us. Um, and had he not been there, it could have been a wonderful mm. place. I mean, but, you know, just super out in the in the boonies were with you know no place to go um people would have left over time but initially it, it just seemed like it would be a wonderful place but it was not ready for a thousand people to show up in we've heard and, stories over the years that the jim jones that, that it became a a devolving situation that he began to I don't know if the word is lose his mind or fall yeah. apart or whatever, but yeah. it, it almost sounds like what you're saying, it was bad right from the start. It, the minute he got there, he sent people down before he ever went down there. But when the press started to look into people's temple, you know, is this a church? Should they be getting the, this you know, tax um, uh, credit for being a church? Or are they really a political movement? And really, Jones, People's Temple was more of a political movement, but Jones 
you know, p- pretended we were a church, and so he had he paid no taxes. So the money that we had in the United States, he got out of the United States to help with us later. However, that money never came in. While I was down there, it was a failing agricultural community. We had rice water soup for breakfast, um, and there was no protein. So our your soul over time became so weak. And I just remember I kept on thinking, I've, I've got to leave, I've got to leave, I've got to figure a way out. And in the end, I was, I was, I was just lucky that um, I got very sick working in the fields. I'd been in there for four months. I got sick, and I was put in a medical unit. Jones put people in the medical unit that spoke up and said, hey, I don't like it here. I, I want to go back to the United States. They were taken away and put on drug like Thorazine and things, so pe- so they'd be an example of everyone not to dissent and not to speak up or out. And so that was a you know that was a warning to me. I was going to pretend I was part of the team no matter what. And when I did get very sick, he decided to send me into the capital for just a few days. And it was during that time, it would take me six more weeks, which I, which I write about in Seductive Poison, how to figure out how to get out of South America. I didn't have a passport. I was afraid of the American consulate because Jones had, um, uh, you know, spies in all of these ministries. Deborah, I'm going to jump in one more time. Can you stay with us for one more segment? Because I want to keep Absolutely. going if we can. Let me take one yeah. more quick break, and we'll come back with Deborah Layton after this. Stay with us. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Deborah, you were saying that you were one of the lucky ones. You got, you, I mean, no one says they get they get lucky because they got sick, but in this case, you did. You got sick, and that allowed you to get to, to Georgetown and eventually back to the states. Did did you tell people when you got back to the states what was going on? Yeah, actually, when I was in Guyana, uh, the day I got an emergency passport to leave, um, I wrote an affidavit in in there saying Jones is planning to kill everybody. When I got back to the United States, I have an, another affidavit, which you can read on my website, DeborahLayton.com, and um, it, it's to the United States government. Six months before everyone died, saying Jones is planning to kill everybody and that I need, you know, please help, send help. Um, but my story was so far-fetched, and I look way, way younger, and so at the age of 24, I looked like I was 16 when I went to Washington, D.C., and I gave sworn testimony before the State Department, uh, and Leo Ryan went down, and two days later, he and everybody in Jonestown perished. And and, and let me just c- correct one misnomer. Sure. You know, people say they, they committed suicide. Jones had the babies killed first. That was his plan. That's in my affidavit. 300 babies do not commit revolutionary suicide. Mm. He did that so that the parents would run to be with their children, panicked, and then those parents would, sh- would, would have syringes of, uh, of um, cyanide shot into their back. It was, mass, it was a mass murder by a madman. When you then are home, and pe- do you tell people... You have now, obviously, you've written the book, but at that time, back when this was fresh, did you tell people that you had been part of this, or is there a sense of shame and about being a pariah and a fear of what people would think that you had been part of this? 
I, I'd say that in the beginning, when I first came back, I was in the news constantly, and this was for a good six months before it all happened because I'd gone public. But after that, I started working on the trading floor of an investment banking firm with all these trade, you know, uh, you know, stock market guys, and I. It was then that some of the uh, indoctrination from Jones slowly crumbled away. You know, the listen, my family's wasn't poor and I was educated in England and all and my father was a scientist but I had been completely brainwashed and uh, when I came back I thought white people were bad and it was at this firm these guys were so great and supportive of me found out where I'd been and what had happened to me but I would keep quiet although they knew for another 18 years and it was Mm. my my Memoir starts out with I'm driving to work. It's 5 a.m. and this thing with the Branch Davidians is happening, and I think, oh my god, I got to call them. I got to call. I got to call the FBI and say this is not what you do when people are entrapped. You can't come in with with, with military vehicles because they're already entrapped. They need to feel like they can run run away from their captor. And, um, and then I thought, oh god, god, if I do that, everyone's going to know who I am again. And I have a four-year-old, and it, and it, and I realized at that time I was following in my mother's footsteps of well, well-intentioned secrets that she escaped Nazi Germany. She came to the United States at the age of twenty-something, twenty-two. She met my father, who was a good West Virginian boy, and they're good people, wonderful, but they don't like anybody that ain't them. Mm. And they decided not to tell anyone my mother was Jewish. And I think that well-intentioned secret set me up to look for black, black and white answers outside of my home later. I wish we could do this for two hours because it's fascinating. Um, and I've got so many more things I want to ask. Unfortunately, we're almost out of time. But I did want to ask this. I thought of this today because we use the phrase as a cliche now in our society. Uh, if we don't want you to follow along with someone else, we say, don't drink the Kool-Aid. And I'm wondering, is that offensive to you when you hear that? Or is that, from in your perspective, from your perspective, a good reminder of what happened? And even though it may be a little bit making soft the, the horror of what happened, that it actually makes the point? No, it, it doesn't because the people were murdered and they were... It, it'd be like saying, hey, go take... go." Go take a shower, uh, you know, a, a, a chemical shower, mm. uh, like for Auschwitz. I mean, people were entrapped. They couldn't get out. They wanted out. They were afraid. And, um, but, you know, history does repeat itself because each of us can't understand how another has been hurt. And unless you actually burn your finger on a hot frying pan, you have no concept of how much it can hurt. And... Um, you know, in my seductive poison, it's being has been re-released this year. It's now in Audible, and it's been optioned for film. Mm, and, fantastic! Yeah, it's, and, um, and I'll come back anytime. Well, listen, we would love to do that. Uh, the book is available. I went and checked today. Up here in Canada, it's available at Indigo at Chapters at Indigo.ca. You can get it through Kobo. Uh, it's all over the place. Again, it's called Seductive Poison, a Jonestown Survivor's Tale of Life and Death in the People's Temple. Deborah, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the Thank time to do you. this today. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. That is Deborah Layton. Once again, the name, Seductive Poison. If you need a, when I say a good read, I mean, it's, it's not an easy read. It's a horrible read. What happened? The book itself is very good. But De- Seductive Poison, a Jonestown Survivor's Tale of Life and Death in the People's Temple, 40 years ago Sunday. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
there was a time when a 54 to 51 game was absolutely the domain of the CFL. There was no chance that you were going to have that in an NFL game. There was no chance that that was going to happen in an NFL game. The NFL had games that were finishing 6-3. If you had a touchdown, it was a good day sometimes. There were not a lot of big, high-scoring, exciting, super games in the NFL once upon a time. It was a rushing league. It was a grinding league. It was not a game like this. It was not a scoring league like this. But last night it was 54 to 51. But here's the interesting thing about what's happened in the world of football. We now have an NFL that through 11 weeks of the season, now granted, the NFL has many more teams than the CFL does. All right? There's a lot more teams in the NFL than there are in the CFL. I get that. But through 11 weeks in the season, the NFL has now had 40 games with at least 50 points scored has 30 other weeks, 30 other games, pardon me, with at least 60 points scored, and 28 teams have put up 40 points or more in a game. CFL, the entire season had 24 games of 50 points, 19 of 60, and 21 teams hit 40. Now, it's a smaller league, but those numbers, that gap is closing rapidly, and suddenly, the NFL is not, I mean, they still have rules that make it the no-fun league, but it is not as boring a league as once upon a time. You could used to love the league, but it, it's now. You've now got some serious excitement going on with the way the offenses are playing. And you want to know something? The interesting part about this is so much of it is stuff that has been pinched from the CFL. Bubba O'Neill joins us now. Bubba, how are you? Oh, you know, still kind of down about the tie cats. I are guess. you really? Are you down? Well, I mean... Need a hug? You know, it was sort of the inevitable. I mean, you lose to a team three teams, three times. I think the writing's kind of on the wall about who's the better team. And then, really, on Sunday, it was the ultimate punctuation mark because that was the... You know the biggest of the beatdowns of you know of the three losses. It was we were just talking before you came on. Uh, one of the really interesting things, and this came from the Tie Cats game, which was a I mean it was an exciting game if you were an Ottawa fan. I'm not sure how exciting it would have been if you were a Tie Cat fan. Monday night football game last night, which was just unbelievable. The NFL, when I looked at the numbers and I was throwing out some of the numbers, the numbers of games that have had 50 points combined by the two teams in the NFL, 60 points combined by uh, two teams in the NFL. It's getting up to numbers that is about to surpass the CFL. And I'm not even talking about numbers of teams. I know there's more teams in the NFL. I'm talking on a per capita basis. The NFL has become, in a lot of ways now, what the CFL was 20, 25 years ago. It really has. I mean, last night's game was the first time in NFL history where two teams, both teams, you know, scored 50 points each. You know, that was something to be, to really behold. And it goes to show you, you know, sometimes trends of what goes on in other leagues. There are coaches that have been in the CFL, that have coached in the CFL, that are in the National Football League right now, and have taken some of the tendencies. Now, some of the rules don't allow you to do some of the same things you would do in the Canadian game, but, you know, what we're seeing is also a different type of athlete, I mean, than what we've seen. The long gone are the big, bulky guys, 
you know, on certain certain positions. Long gone are just those big tight ends. We're seeing more a, a wide receivers on the field. There was a time in the NFL when I first started watching the game where three wide receiver sets were like, oh, wow. Now teams are going with spread offenses with five and six receivers and sending the, the running back out of the backfield. It is an offensive-minded game right now, uh, and I think it's sort of going to the trend of all sports right now, uh, Scott. People want to see runs. People want to see goals. People want to see more touchdowns and home runs. Yeah, no, I. and the funny part about it is that this, I don't know that this is a ideal for the CFL because the thing that has made the CFL such compelling watching over the years is, is it has provided so much more of that than the NFL has. And if the NFL suddenly, and it has been getting closer and closer, if the NFL becomes the league where shootouts are commonplace, uh, the CFL loses some of its viewership advantage over that league, I think. Um, I, you know, Scott, you know, it's funny, that's, a, that's an interesting debate, you know, that has been kind of gone on for many years, really, and I kind of disagree with it. Here's the reason why. The, the CFL is still very exclusive in its three-down rules. Yep. It's exclusive in the way they handle the kicking, the special teams game, and it's also exclusive in, the self, uh, in, its, in itself of the wide field and the way that the game has to be approached. And sometimes it's sort of athletes that the, the game needs to be um, you know, an entertaining product. So as much as I see what you're saying in terms of points being scored and that type of entertainment value, I still think that CFL fans will always enjoy the game because it is a different played game and the fact that there is the Canadian quota as well too. I, w- watching that Ticat game on the weekend, it, it was a reminder. Now, again, it wasn't a reminder for Ticat fans. Well, it was a reminder for Ticat fans, not in a good way. Watching Ottawa's offense was like watching CFL football, though, in the 80s and into the 90s when, you know, defense was a secondary thing. And if you had an even competent quarterback, you could go up and down the field. And it, to me, it was a flashback. Ottawa's performance on offense in that game was a flashback to 80s CFL football. You know, uh, Mike Morelli, who's an analyst for the you know for the Tiger Cats, kind of made me think. And he reminded, it, he said it reminded him of when he played in the late '90s with the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And, you know, when Danny McManus was throwing the ball, not getting sacked. Trevor Harris didn't get sacked. He com- he had three. In- he had what thirty four. I believe he threw thirty four passes and ha- only had three incomplete passes. The ball was coming out quickly. It was short, long, intermediate routes being completed, and he spread the ball to ten different receivers. And that and is, everybody seemed open all the time, all the time. And his his recognition of finding receivers was unbelievable because the ball was coming out so quickly that the Tiger Cats had such little time to react. You know, whether through pass rush or through the you know uh, tight coverage in the secondary. So, you know, again, is this a trend? Is this the way we're going to see the game being played on both sides of the border? Well, I guess time will only tell. But I do know that, you know, in terms of ratings, people want scoring. No, and I hope, I really hope the CFL continues to take note of this because the NFL, you're absolutely right. This is what, this is, I think, as you think, this is the way, this is what people want to see. And I think that finding new things in the league 
to make scoring, to make more games look like Ottawa's offense. And I'm not suggesting just Ottawa's offense because it beat Hamilton. That's not what I mean at all. But we saw Ottawa's offense with Hamilton the week before against BC. Yes. No, exactly. We need more games like that, but not just blowout games. Somehow, we, we have to t- get the CFL back to not the way it was where Matt Dunnigan put up 700 and, what is it, 756 yards yeah, or something that one game. Yeah. Uh, we don't need that. I mean, that gets stupid at a certain point. But, th- you know, that Monday night game last night was so much like 1980 CFL football. And you went, how, who could not watch that? Who could, who could turn away from that? And, Scott, you know what's really interesting about that? Because, obviously, you do have people out there that say, you know, well, I like defensive-minded games. I like teams, you know, that are based on defense and have great defensive players. Well, the Rams especially have an incredible defensive, even though they just got destroyed point-wise last night. They have some incredible defensive players. And in that game alone, there were three touchdowns scored by the defense. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, it was so, so it was amazing. Was, I mean, offense was obviously you know paramount paramount last night, but the defenses were coming up with big plays, which really kind of made it. You know, I'm not here to say it was the greatest game of all time, but boy, when you think about the greatest games you've ever watched, it was among the most exciting. Whether absolutely. it was greatest or not, it was exciting. Absolutely. And and here's the thing: I know that people say they love watching good defense, and I get that. Uh, however. If you had a choice between watching a 54-51 game or a 6-3 game, there may be three people on planet Earth that would choose the latter. <laughs> exactly, and I think that uh, I think what you're saying there, and I would agree with this, is that definitely trends to the, an older crowd. Um, <laughs> what, who are, who are drifting off so they don't <laughs> want to miss anything? <laughs> exactly, right? I mean, the, at some point, and the CFL has been the most guilty of this, more than any other pro league, there was a time that they did not cater to their youth, and they paid the price heavily, dearly for yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. In fact, I still think they're still, in some ways, battling back, um, and they've got to be able to keep up with the uh, expectations, the sort of wants and needs of the younger viewer. Now, I'm not saying go crazy, and I, I mean we're not seeing this in NHL where the goalies are. You know, we are seeing some scaling back of the equipment, but you know, I don't want the I don't want the goalie nets to be the size of soccer nets or anything like that. But there are tweaks and little changes to the game that can be made on a yearly basis that does not accept, you know upset the history of the game or you know the balance of the game, but can keep it competitive and exciting for all that are you know watching on TV or paying the price to watch in the seats. Got a few more minutes, and I want to switch to something else very quickly. And it's something that I talked about on Friday uh, here on the show, but I wanted to get your thought on it because it's something that has starting next spring. Now that ha- now the Tie Cats are out, the Bulldogs are still going, but starting next spring and through next year, we are now going to have the Tie Cats, the Bulldogs, the Hamilton Cardinals baseball team in town, uh, McMaster Sports, Mohawk Sports, Redeemer Sports, plus Forge FC, the new soccer team, the Hamilton Honey Badgers basketball team. Are you looking at the landscape of Hamilton sports and the way people support sports in the city and thinking that all those teams are going to survive and thrive? It's the greatest question going right now, Scott. 
Now I look at it. I'm gonna. I I I've thought about this long and hard. You know, ever since uh, just on my own, on my personal time, thinking about this. You know, as each team kind of, you know, steps forward, and some of these teams that are, you know, increasing their sort of marketing as well as social media presence. You know, we're talking about the Hamilton Steelhawks. You know, the yes. Allen Cup, the Dundas Real McCoys. I haven't even touched on the Real McCoys you know, and the, the, the Stony Bees, Creek. Yep. You know, the Kilty Bees, who are like the junior team for the uh, the, the the feeder team for the Bulldogs, these are all teams grabbing and looking for attention. And I sit here sometimes in my, my, my four-and-a-half-minute sports report, and I, and, and I don't know where I'm going to fit everything sometimes on top of stuff that needs to be talked about in pro sports. Great question, Scott. I think it's something that's going to play itself out, but I do know that the market is extremely competitive. Now, I also revert that by thinking there's a lot of people out there that love sports in this area. And is there a piece of pie for everyone that will work? Like I said, only time will tell. I just hope, and this is just my personal feeling when I think about this, that the you know these teams that are you know especially coming in right now that are going to be big players like the Honey Badgers and like you know Forge FC. I hope their expectations aren't out of whack. That's well, why, yeah, you know, like I hope they're not thinking that they're you know on a regular basis. You know, maybe like the old Hamilton Steel, Steel, um, Skyhawks. Skyhawks. Yeah, Skyhawks. Back in the day. Like, you're not going to be playing in front of 15,000 people every night. But that's my fear for those two teams in particular. And look, I'm, I, I love that new teams want to start playing here. But it seems to me that the, the, the Honey Badgers, the basketball team that's starting, in my mind, would have been better off if they could have playing in Mac or somewhere as opposed to First Ontario Center. Playing in front of 16,000, 17,000 seats. I don't expect them to get 17,000 people. In fact, I know they won't. It's well, n- I, I don't think it's going to look they, very didn't good. They re, didn't they change or reconfigure the seating plan so it, it is a smaller venue? Yeah, but it's still that building. And you're going to have the, the Forge FC playing at Tim Hortons Field with 24,000 right. seats as opposed to, well, what if you could have done that, say, at Mac and you had 6,000 seats? And you, right. Uh, that, that is my one concern with this, that you're playing in oversized facilities. The Bulldogs have already talked at length of about how this is a problem for them, and they've got an owner who is deep-pocketed and committed to this. I That's my fear, that so much of the sporting experience is the atmosphere and the experience of being at the game, and if you're sitting there Great feeling point. pretty alone, uh, no matter how good the product is, right. you may walk away going, well, that wasn't all that exciting. Well, and, and you're right. I mean, you know, you and I have, you know, been, you know, have been fortunate to, you know, be in this community and cover sports for a very long time, and I think of the Bulldogs, the American uh, Hockey League franchise Bulldogs, and of course the, the Bulldogs as they are now in the Canadian Junior Hockey League and the OHL. And you need only go to a game in Kitchener or London to, and in my case, going to the Memorial Cup this last past year, past season, uh, in Regina and seeing 6,500 people in a rink in the Brant Center that was built for junior hockey. The atmosphere, the 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 feelings of the fans and the and the volume of the crowd was exceptional. It's it's outstanding. It's a great product. But you're right when you're playing, even when they drape off the top shelf in the, in in Cops Coliseum or First Ontario Center. You're right. It, it, there's a barrenness to it, and I'd love to see the Bulldogs, and I think the Bulldogs would love to be in a smaller venue, and I think fans would get a better experience if they were in a building that was, you know, 
sixty-five hundred people or seven thousand yeah. people. I hope the new play. I hope the new teams can overcome what I see as a huge challenge with those two big, two big v- venues. But well, we shall see. We shall see. Maybe maybe those three teams, the Bulldogs, and maybe the Honey Badger. Maybe they can go in and get you know go in somehow and, and you know with the city and and say, hey, we can play at the same facility. You know, some type of joint venture. That's uh, that is for down the road. Uh, for now, though, got to let you run. But hey, happy National Absurdity Day! That's what today is. Today's National Absurdity Day. So enjoy that one and enjoy your. It's also National Peanut Butter Fudge Day, which seems absurd to have on the same day as National Absurdity Day. But Peanut celebrate butter. either way. Peanut butter and fudge is a great mix. It, it it's not a bad thing. Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. <laughs> you can watch him tonight on Sports and Weather. Thanks for doing this, sir. Thanks for having me as always. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.